0: Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Greg Romanzo. Now, while we often feature tech company founders on this podcast, most small businesses aren't tech startups. They're intermediaries, marking up products for resale. Growing such businesses can be difficult, as they usually offer generic services. Take shipping, the epitome of commoditized service. Yet Greg Romanzo's achievement stands out for many reasons. He and his partners scaled the freight forwarding business to 200 employees in 17 years, breaking free from the typical intermediary constraints. And as you're about to hear, the key to their success was mastering the art of building a sales team. Without further ado, joining us to share his insights is Greg Romanzo. Enjoy.
1: Greg Romanzo, welcome to Build Cell Radio. Ah, thanks. This is the second third-party logistics conversation I've had in like two weeks, J.B. Saucedo, for people who didn't listen to that episode, also in the 3PL industry. But you were in a different part of the business Explain
2: in layman's terms what RR&F Logistics does. We're a middleman in the trucking space. Um, it's a business uh, most people have never heard of, but it is a three or $400 billion market. And really what it's about or, or why it exists is that there are 3 million plus trucks on the road in the United States and 300 or 400,000 trucking companies in the US. So you have a very fragmented supply of trucking capacity in the United States. That means anyone that needs to ship product uh you know uh, in a sort of business to business context um really doesn't know who to call, right? And so that means that there's this large uh, industry of middlemen that help kind of make those connections, right? Connect to a shipper that needs to move something. How did you um, get to do it? A, I was in the space uh, right out of college, you know, kind of first job out of college. You know, I guess the rest is history. It's all I've ever done uh, up to this point. So yeah, so it's, um, it's a pretty first job. And how did you get into starting your own company? Uh, I left that company with uh, one of my colleagues, and we opened the business in 2004. So it was, um, you know, inspired by the idea of, um, you know, I think I think twofold, very very entrepreneurial in the sense that hey, we can. We can do this and we can do this better and and carve out a living for ourselves and just trying to live the American dream. I think that's part of it. You know, trying not to get stuck in that traditional kind of corporate, uh, slow moving culture. We wanted to hustle and go after it. The role
1: of the middleman, the person who has the black box and can find the truck in the right spot and the driver in the right spot and bring them all together magically for the right price. Like that's now being disintermediated effectively by technology. Well, they're trying. They're trying. How did you think about that?
2: Uh, i think that was for me personally that was one uh reason why it was desirable to you know get a deal done with our business you know we were essentially still conducting the same business model as when I learned it when i started my career 20 years earlier and that scared me um you know just thinking about the kodak example or something like that where this you know business goes from king of the mountain to completely obsolete you know I, that that was something that kept me up at night how is you know? that Im-
1: how is that impacting multiples in the industry like when you look out at at at, at multiples in the trucking space, the freight uh, brokering space like is it depressing multiples based on the fact that the people can sort of see 20, 30, 40 years out, like we're not going to need these, as many of these sort of middlemen roles. Like, is it depressing multiples or what what impact Um, is it having on multiples?
2: I don't think it's as much of an impact as the current, you know, sort of uh, freight recession that's going on. I think that's really more of the, you know, kind of blinking red light. Um, I think that, you know, the space is viewed upon that it's going to go through some change and consolidation. But what I, I don't think that the, technological disruption has really hit home yet. I think there's a lot of efforts um, chipping away at the sides. Their challenge in really getting to flip this business upside down is that it's incredibly fragmented. And that's like I had explained in the beginning, that's kind of what, what makes the business exist of, of being mm-hmm. a broker in the space. Um, but there's a resistance to technology and change from both sides of the equation. So both on the shipper side. And on the carrier side, there's just a general, I would say, a general resistance to change, and it's more because of the fragmentation. There's a lot of smaller players in the space, uh, you know, on, on the shipper and, and carrier side. So it's really hard for one piece of technology, one platform, one concept to really get distributed throughout the in, the entire network, right? So, you know, w- one common uh, you know complaint you hear from carriers is that they need Tons of apps on their phone to connect with all these brokers, right? So that's an example of, oh, the app, it's on our phone and it's, you know, it works for us as consumers in e-commerce, but it doesn't work for a carrier because they don't want to manage through 50 or 60 apps, right, on their phone. So that's an example of the technology is there, but the, but it hasn't really, um, you know, penetrated the industry in a meaningful way. So there is um, no one. Uber of the trucking space. Well, Uber is in the trucking space, and um, interesting. Everything that I understand uh, about that business effort is it's uh, either struggling or failing. So, you know, uh, I I think that's sort of the case in point. And I think, you know, it's it's sort of a you know top of mind example for us, right? Um, The reason why I think it's failing is because the shipper clients are used to. Uh, this being an on demand business, right? And they don't want to go change their behavior to participate in the platform. They want, they still expect service. They still expect their vendor to mold into their business process and to kind of be seen and not heard rather than, well, I need to change my behavior to now participate in your platform. Well, that, how does that help me? I'm used to you know snap my fingers and someone is available to service me. And
1: so if I'm if I'm Dell Computer Corporation and I ship a truckload a ton of computers every day, mm-hmm. I, like I, I've got on Speed dial, dial, my trucking my freight people, and mm-hmm. I don't want to change my behavior necessarily right. to go to that exactly. model. But, that's exactly But right. I'd imagine the smaller companies that don't have the same cloud as a Dell. Mm-hmm. Would be more inclined to try a new platform. No?
2: Uh, Yes and no. I mean, I think that, you know, you'll have the, uh, you know, the sort of early adapters that want to, you know, see the bells and whistles. But, you know, at the end of the day, the service experience has to be excellent. And I think that that's where uh, some of these disruptors fall down as well is that, you know, it's this platform and this business idea and this, you know, change idea. Well, at the end of the day, are they delighting their customers? And the results suggest maybe not from some of these disruptors. Yeah. Whereas the legacy providers, you know, can point to, hey, I have this 10-year relationship. I have this 20-year relationship, whatever it might be, the client and I are in love, right? And that's proofs in the pudding there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, how's a freight brokering business valued? Is it a multiple of EBITDA or revenue or like how do, how do you what, what is the mechanism by which you value a freight brokering company? Uh,
2: from everything that I've uh, seen in the marketplace and, and personal experience, yeah, it's it's a multiple on EBITDA, but I think that there are other significant factors in terms of fit, um, customer spread, what what type of business, right? So you can broker a lot of different types of shipments right there's um shipments that are you know if, if you think about um you know walking through a Walmart right so there's um you know boxes of food, there's you know packages of fresh food right that need to be temperature controlled there are big fixtures that maybe need to go on a flatbed truck um you know there's rush deliveries and all th- more of the stories all different you know types and sizes of shipments so depending on you know what the broker specializes in and what the acquirer is looking for you know. I think, uh, you know, impact that. So you can see, in my experience, I've seen different, you know, examples based on, hey, we're looking for this one niche and it works really well for us versus we're one giant platform and we're trying to merge with another giant platform, right?
1: Got it. So there's some freight forwarders you go like we we have refrigerated, you know, we're we're like the refrigeration guys, right? So mm-hmm. if you need to sort, like set something cold, we're your guys, there's probably others like chemicals and things that are hazardous, right? Like- they need to be you know dealt with differently so what would the multiple range be again from what you've seen in the industry like from like low to high high being we'll get into what maybe what would make a freight forward a freight brokering business kind of sure. more highly valued than a lower one, but give me just the, give me the
2: range. What, what Sure. You, what I, you I would say the, the lowest range that you would see for a very small and simplistic freight brokerage would maybe be three to five times EBITDA. And then, you know, some of the larger transactions that have happened in the space, yeah. Approach 10, 11, and those wow. would be sort of at the frothy peaks, uh, you know, of um, timing. But And it varies in there, again, based on those niches, size, track record, that sort of stuff.
1: Got it. Yeah. So let's walk you through um, what you guys did to sort of uh, make your business as attractive as possible. Um, Maybe walk through how you were thinking about the business. I guess my first question is, did you always know that one day you would sell? Or for a lot of, you know, particularly in in an industrial kind of business, a lot of folks think, you know, I'll pass it down to my kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like when I'm ready, I'll kind of pass. Was that sort of your your plan? I know you had two other partners. Did you all think, well, we'll get our, you know, our kids involved? Or did you know one day there'd be an exit on the horizon?
2: I think when we started the business, exits and and acquisitions weren't you know, in the vocabulary, right? It was one of those, you know, kind of make ends meet, take care of take care of your responsibilities and your families, and this is going to be our vehicle to do that, right? So it was a very, uh, I think, kind of one dimensional, um, not seeing too far down the path. We busted our tails in the beginning and saw success, but what we saw was that we saw a business that couldn't survive without the three of us operating it every day, right? And so the 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 challenge became, uh, you know, how how do we take this business business to the next level, right? So instead of us being self employed, we're really, you know, people that run a business model. And, and how many uh, employees were
1: you at when you made that discovery? Was it just three of you, or did you have a couple of helpers already on? on uh, no, there,
2: there there was a few. I think we were, you know, eight to ten, right, something like that. It was still pretty early in the ball game in the first few years, and it was. And-
1: Yeah. But a lot of people like running a 10 employee company, they're super happy, right? Like they, they're the Jason Cohen, another person we just had on the show, uh, King versus, oh gosh, what's the analogy? It's like, do you want to be rich or King? I can't remember, but some people will have a 10 employee company. They -hmm. control everything. They're the hub and the spoke and they're super happy. They're like, you know, I, I get to carve out, couple hundred grand a year in, in, mm-hmm. in dividends, nice tax efficient. I don't want to complicate my life. Um, I can run my car through the business. I can run my vacations through the business. Sure. I'm good. Sure. I don't, I don't, I don't need all this scaling, growing stuff, right? You and your partners though, came to a different conclusion when you had half a dozen employees. You're like, no, we got to get this thing, professionalized. it. Tell me why you like, what sure. was behind that decision?
2: It's, an, it's actually a very simple and easy answer. And we believe that in our business, if you were not growing, you were going out of business. So we were committed to each year and each month, our business was going to be you know, larger than the previous. And there just was not going to be... There wasn't going to be any exception to that. And, and that's the way we operate the business. What's and, and, that philosophy? It's because there's a lot of companies
1: that don't grow and they're super
2: happy, right? Like they're... Yeah.
1: Like, what was it that you thought, in particular in the freight brokering business, that if you weren't growing, you were dying?
2: Right. I think the nature of the freight brokering business, you know, sort of demands this mindset. You are... Uh, every day that you wake up, you're one phone call away from your largest mm-hmm. customer leaving you. And, you know, in a lot of our training, you know, I would show... uh Employees, you know, these are the top five customers in 2005, and these are the top five customers in 2010. And sometimes the, the names would be totally different, right? So there was that constant churn. We worked on a lot of relational or transactional type relationships. So uh, we didn't have a contract to do business for a year or two years or anything like that. And essentially, each shipment that we handled for a customer was the audition for the next customer, right? So that sort of You know, you proved your worth every day to your clients. Yeah, there was there was no mindset of hey, you know, okay, you know, if if my goal is ten thousand dollars a day in profit, that's all I need to hit. You know, that mindset. You know, for us, we found we didn't believe that was a healthy way to run the business. That's the mindset that again turned us into hey, right? We we're kind of beginning to hit a ceiling here, right? I only have two arms and two ears and two eyes, so my ability, you know, my output is limited. No matter how many you know people i have sitting around me you know helping to you know pass off we need to we need to solve the problem how do we turn some of the business creation and revenue how do we get that in into the arms of the employees and how do we empower uh, and enable our employees to take on that role. And that was that sort of moment, I think, where we began to convert the model from sort of self-driven, self-employed to, oh, this is really becoming a business model. This is becoming this sort of machine that every day is operating and running and growing. And, um, you know, that's where the hard work comes in. Um, but uh, I want to, I want to get into that in a second before we do though, though,
1: let's just talk about your partners. Uh, I just did an interview uh, recently with a a, a guy who had two partners and each of the partners had very different views on the role of the company in order to fund the lifestyle. So the Mm -hmm. one classic story is the one partner thought, I want a new truck. Why does he need a new truck? Well, because... Now I own a company and I would like to run a fancy truck through my company. And the other two were like, no, no, we're growing a business here. We can't take all that cash. And he's like, no, but I want to. Mm-hmm. So there was this sort of discrepancy around the role of the company as sort of a personal piggy bank for the founders versus mm-hmm. we're going to run this thing like it's a publicly traded company. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and and I just wondered, did, did you and your partners have that conversation? How did you kind of stick handle that with your two partners?
2: That's a good question. I think that generally speaking, we we saw eye to eye on um, the, um, you know, the, the business being a vehicle to create wealth for us and to put us into a better place. Um, you know, in a day-to-day sort of, you know, sh- should we take more retained earnings or should we reinvest, right? That's something that you have to talk through. And, you know, and that's, Uh, that's just one of those examples of, you know, how a partnership has to work together and, and, uh, you know, compromise and push and pull to, to, um. Continue. um, Were you all at similar
1: stages in your life? Like, uh, you know, I find that if the partnerships are at very different stages, so like one's 30, the other's 55, Mm -hmm. one wants to grow and has like less needs for cash, the 55 year old's more conservative, doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. want to take the risk. Like, where were you all like in life stage? Two of
2: us were fairly close in age, and then um, one was um, about 15 years older. So, and how did um, that
1: 15 year old? Old gap impact
2: your decision making. Well, frankly, he worked outworked us both. So <laughs> I think the exception to the point you're trying to drive home, he was he he uh, he was the exception to that is what I should say. And you know, so we really were on the same page in terms of hey, this foot on the gas pedal mindset. This is something special, um, you know, and we're all in this together. I was lucky to have two of the most. You know, talented and motivated partners. You know, to run a business with, right? So, uh, I guess from my perspective, it was easy because I had two great partners. Um, never would have happened without them, and never would have been able to do it um, individually. And I think if each of us looked in the mirror, we would agree with that. So, you know, the partnership was more powerful than the individual. And I think there was a lot of, you know, that sort of like blood brother type buy-in, you know, into into running this business together. And um, I think if you don't have that solid partnership, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to run a successful business. I I think, I would, I think people see through it if if it's not a strong partnership.
1: Yeah. It's kind of very obvious pretty quickly, I I think, especially for your employees. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to know when it came to, this time in your journey where you're just two or three employees beyond the the, the founders mm-hmm. um, and, and you are coming to this conclusion, we need to kind of professionalize this. We need to replace ourselves as the ringleaders here. Were you all in alignment around that
2: decision? I, we were because we were, um, the, you know, that was also the moment where you know, the, the business was starting to show, you know, sort of fruits of the labor to date and it just whets your appetite for more of that, right? So when you combine that with this mindset of we have to keep growing the business because we know that's how this business needs to be run, mm-hmm. right? And you whet your appetite with financial success of it. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to kind of put the two uh, together and say, okay, here we go. Let's do this. We're going to keep growing this, um, you know. How'd you guys split up the equity? With thirty
1: three and a third, <laughs> yeah. So everybody was sort of even yeah. yeah. Keel, you mentioned you know there was a a way that you incentivized your team uh, to avoid the short term thinking, mm-hmm. and and in some freight forwarding company or, or brokering companies, there's this like, hey, you got to get a you, you got to hit a certain profit threshold every day, and that can drive bad behavior among the employees. How sure. did you, by contrast, choose to incentivize people to play the long game?
2: The, the incentive base was, was, you know, uh, was a, you know, commission based on, you know, a share of the commission on the, you know, profit of the business. And that structure de- definitely rewards short-term thinking. So what you, what you have to do in your, in your training and you have to embed in the culture of, Really, the customer lifetime value and the value Is that what of relationships. You guys did? How did you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it's just—it's not a it wasn't a hard sort of data-driven fact. It was just more of these anecdotal evidence of, evidence of hey, you know, remember this account and they're you know, we used to do all this business and they're gone. You've got to you know, you've got to take care of your customers. You've you've got to grow these relationships. You know, you need to make sure that you know. That they're around, you know, years down the road from now, right? So, what am I doing today that is putting everything in my power to make sure that they're around, right? Uh, uh down the road. But I'd be curious to know how, to, how do you do that
1: practically? Cause I'll tell you, I'll tell you a personal story. So, we, uh, we use a, um, currency trader to, to, to trade currency because we deal with a bunch of different currencies. And, it's always the same. The 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 broker, the currency person, mm-hmm. will kind of hook us with a really competitive rate, and we're like, "Oh man, that's an incredible rate. Um, let's use these guys for currency trading." And. And so they kind of do a couple of trades, and again, we'd, we'd verify that they're, you know, like really competitive. And, and sure enough, they'd be really competitive. And then we'd fall asleep for a year, mm-hmm. use the same broker again and again and again. And little did we know, the margin was getting fatter and fatter sure. and fatter over time as we got lazy and just complacent. And then all of a sudden, we'd we'd get a rate, and we're like, "That's not competitive." And we'd go back and realize, "Oh my God, he's been totally screwing us for like a year <laughs> because he got us on the cheap rate, and then he just kind of took our loyalty at like the. Sure. Advantage. So like brokers, I mean, they're coin operated, right? Like they are going to go for the profit. So it's one thing for you to say, look at the long-term value, but you must have had some system in place that enabled you to capture, like police these guys. So the
2: the classic example of your question is the trucking market is a supply and demand market. And so there is no, you know, we're not certain what we're going to, um, hire a carrier for on a certain shipment but in advance we are giving the customer a price on that shipment so what that means is and and, and the reality is there are often moments where we've we've miscalculated we've misestimated a snowstorm hit um, whatever it might be that impacts the 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 flow of trucking in the United States we guess wrong right so what do we do uh, when we're wrong well we're going to are, are we going to say, no, nah, you know what? I can't pick that up today because I have no one that is available at the price I thought. That's not what we do. We say, you know what? I told you we're going to get this done for you. You know, our costs were higher than expected, but you know what? We're paying this carrier more than what I'm invoicing you for the shipment because your business is important because I want to do business with you tomorrow. Right. So that's an example of, you know, sort of operationally how, um, you know, things would happen in our world and how we lived up to our end of the bargain, right? So, you know... So that was hardwired into your business model. Oh, yeah. You didn't, yep. didn't have to go. You, you had to take care of your customers. You had right. to execute because there's 20-something thousand competitors in the space. They would easily... You know, the switching cost is low. Mm-hmm. So that's why I said, you know, every shipment is, is your audition for the next one. So if, if you fail the audition, you're not getting called again, right? And you didn't want that to happen. And as it and 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 I've learned, the cost of finding a new uh, customer, you know, is multiple times, um, you know, the revenue of one. Right? So you can't you can't throw these relationships away over you know one you know snowy day in January. Right? You've got to get the business done. You've got to take care of the customer, and 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 that's what uh, that's what we learned, and that's what was successful. And we had sticky relationships, and they stayed with us because they knew that we would take care of them, and and they knew that. Our competitors weren't doing that, right? And they would test and they'd come back.
1: Interesting. And how did you stay in touch with customers when, you know, by default, they don't need you when they don't need you, right? Like, so if they don't have it in the ship, Mm -hmm. they don't need you. So how did you sort of elegantly stay in touch, stay top of mind until they needed you. So many industries that you can stimulate demand. Hey, we're gonna yeah. have a sale tomorrow on this product. Why don't you come in? But if I've got nothing to ship, you can't yeah. stimulate demand.
2: I've got nothing to ship. How did you stay in touch? Yeah, and I found too that when the more that you poke them, you know, the more they felt like they were being sold. And that didn't that didn't um you know, that didn't end in a good way. So I was trained to To really be high touch through the transaction, right? And really slow the transaction down. So many of our competitors are looking to remove touch from the process. We were trying to put as much in it. And that was a differentiator for us, right? Because then I never, you know, I was just always kind of right there, top of mind. And I was always in touch versus, Hey, what, you know, what do you got going on today? Right. The sort of, you know, like a puppy (laughs) breathing on you, right? Like. Um, I didn't want to be that. So, you know, we intentionally had more service touch points during the transaction and, you know, kind of kept that dialogue open. And it, I, I felt like that was a more organic, non salesy way to stay in front of the client. Got it. Got it. So how big did you get this business before you decided to sell it? Like in terms uh, of
1: your revenue or number of employees or whatever? Yeah, we were
2: approaching were. about 200 employees um, in 2021. And uh, we were uh, moving anywhere from about a thousand to 1,100 shipments per day at the time. So 200 employees, what was the breakdown of
1: brokers to office people? Like how, how did you, how was that 200 employees
2: broken out? Uh, we, including the the owners, we had less than 10 people in administration. So it was almost all all brokers on the floor trying to help customers, look, looking for new opportunities, executing existing commitments. Very wow, you've got
1: 190 brokers who manage the relationship with their customers. Mm-hmm. And, and so just 10 admin staff sort of on the yeah. back end running the company. Mm-hmm. Wow. Huh. And what was keeping the 190 brokers loyal to you? Because they've got a skill set. They've got a book of business. Sure. Why wouldn't they just leave like you did
2: and <laughs> go start their own brokerage? I took the lessons that I learned leaving that large company to say well you know why did i leave what made me look because i didn't want an employee like myself you know having those same thoughts right so i was certain that they would struggle to find a uh, a competing uh, you know compensation package and sort of w2 than what they were getting with us right maybe and maybe you could beat it by a couple bucks but you weren't going to beat the Environment of success, the support um, for you know the business that you were running, Um, and we also gave a lot of latitude to get business done, and and uh, especially our more senior people. I mean, they're professionals in the space, so you don't need my approval to make a decision to take care of that relationship, right? That's the other piece. Hey, I want to you know go see him. I want to get on a plane and go out there and and check in with him, or I want to you know. We have this problem. I need to, you know, I need to rectify it. Why would I put a budget on making a client happy, right? Um, if, if if said client has been with us for years and you can see that revenue stream, you know, out in the future, why why would I jeopardize that over uh, a fraction of that revenue today on a, on a cost today, right? So, you know, you make getting back to that earlier conversation, yeah. Did you make them sign non-competes? Uh,
1: yes. They did have non-competes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So they've got non-competes, so they can't go directly in. Although in some states, you know, I think I think it's hard to get those non-competes to hold yeah. up. Yeah. So what would your turnover be of brokers in a typical year? Like if you had 190 starting the year, how
2: many mm-hmm. would, would would typically stay with you by the end of the year? I tried to look at this challenge and listen, my experience, every business, right, deals with turnover and it's one of those, 100%. uh, you know, thorn in your side. And, and, uh, I looked at our sort of tenure track, right? So anyone with greater than say one or two years experience in our business, our turnover in that segment was near zero. And, and because we spent so much time. Um, there's so much energy around building a a model in and in a company that they could work in where they could be successful and they felt empowered and I, I wasn't so concerned that they were going to leave and I don't mean that in an arrogant way I, mean, I I think we built a good system for them to you know accomplish their goals and to grow but there is significant turnover in the freight brokerage space and that's that you know sort of try it out try it on. Phase sure. for someone entering the business. Frankly, it's a quirky business and it's not a great fit for everyone's skill set, right? So I was at peace with that. And, you know, we certainly um, did our best to, to find the right matches and to, you know, look for the characteristics that have been successful for previous, you know, hires. And there is going to be turnover in the business, but I found it's really right in that sort of startup um, spot. Two two follow on questions. The, the
1: the ones who made tenure, like the the, the kind of tenured professor, mm-hmm. tenured broker who who was loyal and, and you know, two plus years experience. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you do to retain them beyond what you've already shared? You know, make giving them latitude to kind of make their own decisions, honor their commitments. I mean, did you have? Uh, Stock options, or stay bonuses, or incentives that sort of tied them to the business. Uh,
2: You know, we had a you know four hundred one k platform and 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 the matching and the like. I felt like that was table stakes to run a business where you know you had people coming to work. Um, What I really tried to you know cement um, you know in in the the sort of message about you know working in our company was your profit sharing is 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 at your desk every day, right? That, um, you, you know, right on uh, in the front door, you're getting a share of the profits, right? Yeah. And um, so I really tried to try to reinforce that message. And then especially in the hiring um, conversation, specifically point and say, hey, you see that person across the way, you know, they were in this same interview room four years ago, here's been their path. Here's how they've been successful. Here's what they've done. And here's what that success means. So when you can, you know, Show that tangible example of success and, and how people can thrive. And there aren't a lot of businesses that someone can go work for or, or someone can interview with and and get that exact model of how to do it. And there's someone doing it, and they were in your shoes, and you know here's the path. And um, that was very that turned out to be very successful for us. Yeah. What's the secret to getting
1: people from the less than two-year tenure up to the to the more established? Like, how did you train them, motivate them? I think a lot of people listening to this struggle with salespeople who... Uh, there's just a lot of turnover mm-hmm. in their kind of young of sales team. Uh, you know, they don't know how to hire properly. If they hire people, they kind of oftentimes... Yeah. They leave quickly. So, what's the secret of getting the right people into the bus sure. in the first place?
2: Well, I think the first part is you said the word "right people," so you can't you can't fake that, and you can't change that, right? So, it it has to be the right person. How did right? you and figure it, that out in your company? Like, was
1: there a question that you loved to ask, which was kind of a bit unusual, that allowed you to identify the
2: right person? It's as much an art as it is a science and you know, we had turnover in that beginning phase, so we we failed on it as well. We're most successful, um, you know, in that hiring slow, firing fast type mindset of, you know, if it's, it it wasn't a fit for us, and I can't change what the market needs for us to be successful in this business, right? So I wasn't able to um, change that, and I think um, I found a lot of people kind of self-select in that process anyway, and say, you know what. Um, I'm uncomfortable here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look elsewhere. I'm gonna look for other opportunities. So it's both, it's both of us not feeling it, and you know, it, it kind of, um, you know, resolves on its own. Um, yeah, I think, I think the other part is when you do find the right person, you need to take care of them and you need to set them up for success. And I think we were really good at that. Where you know, a reference before, we had only a few people in administration, so we relied on our senior people to be. Mentors and trainers and, um, and did you pay them for that? Well, we we paid them by putting labor around their business to help grow their business. So, okay. indirectly, we did because uh, we invested yeah. on in their teams and um, gave them the resources to be successful. And it was it was a, that became a win win that the leaders enjoyed the opportunity to help mentor people and to and to. Do something a little different than selling every day, day in and day out, right? It gave them a new challenge of how do I, how do I get this team moving at a, at a, at a better pace? And how do I um, get the most out of my teammate? And, um, you know, really, I think gave them, gave the senior person more buy-in into the overall organization. And then from the, the junior person's perspective, well, I'm sitting next to the senior person. I know that, you know, their paycheck is crazy. I want something like that. I'm going to listen to everything they tell me and I'm going to do what they do. And I'm going to parrot, you know, their best practices. How
1: make in, in freight brokering? Like, I'm sure there's kind of crazy mm-hmm. like uh, edge cases, but like what would a, a typical high performer in freight brokering, not necessarily just at your company, but just sure. in the industry, what would a high performer kind of clear in a given year?
2: I, I would say the sort of... You know the the one and two percent are north of uh, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're wow. they're they're making it and they're successful. And the um, average? Huh, that's a tough question. I always thought um, I looked at is if if you were able to get to a hundred thousand dollars, you had that was the moment to me. That was the conversion moment. So it was year one, year two, but it was really that I hired you in at forty, fifty, sixty grand, depending on what year we're talking about inflation and all that but sure, sure sure uh you know if i got you if i got you from 50 grand to 100 grand i i think i was going to i think we were going to keep going on that track and i think i was going to get you to 200 right that was my mindset of you know how many people in our business are we paying 100 grand to because that to me was that we made it over the hill we made it over the hump there
1: yeah, it makes so much sense because I think about other industries where, you know, the, the constraint on growth is just how can we get more salespeople? Like I think of real estate brokerages, right? Where there's nothing really, I mean, the, the broker kind of eats what they kill. They, they, or the mm-hmm. real estate agents eats what, what they kill. So, it, you know, like there's no constraint other than like, how do we convince more real estate agents to join our brokerage and, and not the one down the street? Right. And so. Hearing how you think about it, super helpful.
2: Yeah, I you, I, I found that we had to create an environment. You know, when you're thinking about hiring someone at an entry level office job, and you know, here's our package and here's what we're doing. I I thought, you know, I looked at the competition of you know who who else is hiring next to me, and I have to make this an enjoyable place for that entry level person to come work. Right, so. I found that that entry level person is measuring the company in a different way than the person that's suddenly making 100k or 200k. Suddenly, they don't care that you know there's almond milk in the fridge as well as you know shelf stable creamer, right? That's not important to them because they're all eyes on the paycheck and what do I need to do? But we created an environment that people wanted to come work, and I think that you know they walked in our office. We had invested in the space and it was clean and. Modern and, you know, there was good daylight and, uh, you know, new computers and that sort of, you know, they, we, we showed them a workstation in an environment where they were comfortable and happy and, you know, um, they felt welcomed. I think that was important.
1: How did that impact your profit margin? Again, I think about middleman type businesses and their profit margins tend to be fairly skinny. Did, were you able to, and you, are you able to share what your profit margin was, uh, or, or, uh, you know, how, how you thought about?
2: Yeah, I I can't get into details around that, but I think you have this race car of a business, right? So why would you why why would we want to put the cheaper fuel inside of it, right? If that makes sense, I guess that's my analogy of um, we we ran a, a high octane business, and so we didn't skimp on the. Uh, the resources, the expenses, what it needed, what the business needed to be run, we didn't skimp on that stuff because we knew that the the, the more we took care of the business, the more we invested in the business, the greater the top end would be and and that proved itself year in and year out. certainly, there are business expenses that are that are not you know don't don't drive investment and don't drive dollars to the future bottom line, but I'm talking about you know the Things like a comfortable work environment and uh, a nice office and a place people want to walk into, company events, um, you know, training, lunches, dinners, whatever it might be, right? I I I didn't want to shortchange that stuff, and I I didn't want our people to feel like we were cutting corners on things that impacted their world um, because that sends a bad message. Um, Of all the things you did to kind of retain these these new uh,
1: brokers who had not yet hit the hundred thousand dollar a year kind of
2: Threshold. What had the biggest impact? The biggest impact is the is that the global strategy of we're running a growing business, everyone's bought into that because everyone can can get some skin in the game, right? So that's the first piece. And the second piece is is that they, you know, had Okay, I, I work for this company with yeah, almost two hundred people, but I've got this team of four or five people that I work with day in and day out, and I look up to them, and I work elbow to elbow with these folks, and we're we're in the the foxhole together, and these are my partners, and um, I think that that those uh, relationships that were forged were um, a big part of people's work experience. Makes sense.
1: There's that old expression, you know, you don't leave a company, you leave your manager. So you, you created these pods or these teams Mm -hmm. that they were working with their more senior colleagues. Let's get into the actual sale itself. So you'd reached 200 almost 200 employees. Um, was there some sort of trigger that made you want to sell or like what happened? What, what, what happened?
2: Sure. Um, we, uh, had worked for, um, a platform company for, um, you know, since inception, we were in an agency for a platform company. And I, I think, uh, there were, um, sort of two key pieces to the puzzle. The first is that the the size of the business, uh, you know, had, had grown to a a point where it was a material thing for them and it was a material thing for us. I believe they didn't want to risk ever losing us. Um, and losing that revenue and, and, and these, um, client relationships and, and everything we had built. Um, what
1: held you to that agency? The, the agency in question, I wrote it down. Is it SunTech's Text?
2: Yeah. It was originally called SunTech and later, uh, you know, uh, run by Mode Transportation. Mm-hmm.
1: So what so you were an agent of Suntech, mm-hmm. which
2: means that you use their technology platform. Their platform, yeah, do. their their back end platform, we handled the front end of the business. So we did all the client and carrier facing business functions and they took care of um you know the technology, the uh billing APAR, um that piece. Mm-hmm. So okay. really we were pre-delivery, they were post-delivery, if you think about it in that sense. Yeah, okay, that's super
1: helpful. Um and what was tying you to them? Did you have like a multi-year
2: contract? Yeah, or we, we worked mm-hmm, under multi-year contracts. and then multiple renewals. Um, you know, it they were a good partner to us. Um, always had been. Um, we had great relationships with the executive team. W- wasn't broke and didn't need to be fixed. So yeah. we're happy being there.
1: So that makes sense. So so you you've grown to almost two hundred employees which is material for Suntech, that's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, these guys are a big agent of ours, like bigger than most on our network, on mm-hmm. our platform. Mm-hmm. Equally, you were a big company, you and your partners felt like, oh man, we, we're we now like a real thing. <laughs> right. right? It sounds like you're like a, like you both came to that. Yeah, we're all thing. grown up.
2: Um, yeah, I, I think what became important for me to answer your question is that I watched a lot of people go from walking in the front door on the first day to establishing careers. I watch people get married, have families, buy houses. And it suddenly dawns on you that the business is bigger than you. And I, you know, hate for it to be that sort of, um, you know, sort of self-centered of a thought. But at some point, it's like, oh, no, there's a lot, of, a lot of people rely on this business. And this is really important. It isn't just about, you know, my future, my well-being. It, you know, there's a lot of people who rely on this. And this is bigger than us and something real. And, um, we have a responsibility, you know, for their best interest. They're a stakeholder in this business and that, um, became important for us, I think in the process. And it was important for us as, you know, a business of three partners to find an outcome that took care of all the stakeholders of this significant size business at this point. So the way we got it done, checked all those boxes. And so that was, that made it an easy path to go down for us because we knew it was the uh, sort of lowest risk scenario for succession in the business. So you're, let me see
1: if I can pressure test something here and make Mm -hmm. sure I've got it right. So, so you and your two partners, you start this business, you're like, we can do this better than, than, than my old company. You start off in the early days, it's a wealth creation thing, right? Like on one hand, you got a paycheck. On the other hand, no, we're going to create the high octane business and we're going to get wealthy. Like this is part, like Mm -hmm. part of the, the kind of motivation. And if I'm hearing you correctly, at some point, you're like, like, I feel pretty good. I'm going to get well taken care of here personally. But you started the realization that this is bigger than just your own personal sure. wealth creation event. This was like something you you were. Am I getting it right, basically? Yeah. But-
2: and I think, it's, you know, that idea kind of came to be. Before we ever thought about selling the business, I opened a business thinking, "Wow, I'm gonna this is gonna make me rich, right? I mean, this is I'm gonna do it myself, and this is my path to to you know financial success." Well, you know, and for every incremental dollar, you receive less happiness, right? And and at some point, you're like, "Well, there's there's got to be more to it than this, right?" And what again, day one, make myself rich? You know, down the road, you realize, "Oh, wait, no." I'm I'm seeing people come into this business, I'm seeing their lives change. That's bigger than me making an extra couple bucks a month, right? That that is fulfilling me in a way I didn't expect to be fulfilled and frankly is more meaningful than the extra couple bucks in my pocket. That that was um something that I will keep close to my heart long after, you know, decades from now. Um God willing, um, that'll be what I feel was the most successful part of our business, albeit not the intended original intended um, goal of the business. Um, uh, for me personally, because- it became most important.
1: Greg, is that because along the way you were able to carve off some some dividends, some profits, kind of get the first couple of rows on Maslow's hierarchy of needs taken sure. care of for you personally? Like, were you like? Able to carve out some money? Or are you literally rolling all your retained earnings back in the business every year, and you haven't taken anything more than your base salary out for 17 years? You're like, uh, at some point, I'd like to get paid here.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I would say that we. I'm not uh, saying that we were, you know, um, living like monks, but you know, we were very aggressive in reinvesting in the business at it, 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 to a point where there definitely were moments where some of our salespeople would. We're taking home more in a month than the owners were, and you've got to be okay with that. You've got to play the long game. Uh, that, that's what I've learned is is that's the best way to run the business. How, yeah. did
1: that, how did that How did that play out with your spouse? Did your spouse kind of go, uh, Greg? Why are they making more than us?
2: No, I I I don't think that was what reverberated for her. I think it was she saw the life changing events for people. She saw. Oh, we came, you know, the Christmas party this year and, you know, last year it had 10 people, this year it had 25, you know, we need to have a bigger room at the restaurant this year, right? Or suddenly there isn't a, you know, I mean, we started flying people all to one spot and, you know, suddenly we needed, um, you know, air travel to all get together. So, she looked at it through a different lens and, um, albeit maybe a healthier one at moments than the one I did, you know, for us as well. I think she saw, you know, this is taking care of our family and our life. And I, I was the biggest example of that. I got, you know, I was a young single guy when the business started. And when I left, I had three kids and was married and, um, you know, a homeowner and all that sort of stuff. So I, I live the example myself as well. Got it. So
1: let's go back to the decision. So. You're all, almost a couple hundred employees. Sun, you're big agent of Suntech, so they're kind of taking notice and saying, "Okay, well, it's a big company." Was there some other sort of thing that happened with your partners that made you collectively say, "Yeah, I'd be ready to sell." Like, I'd be, I'd love to go beyond the qualitative. Like, we realized it was a, it was a real company, right? Like, would did SunTech come to you? Did they, did, did you all have like a partner's retreat where you're like, we came to the conclusion? Was it some, was there some sort of straw that broke the camel's back?
2: There, there wasn't necessarily a straw that broke the camel's back. It was a, it was a very soft, ongoing conversation um, for a few years, um, mm. both internally with us and then with um, the SunTech leadership. Um, that platform did go through some changes as well. And I think that that, um, from their perspective, probably spurred on, uh, went from talk to action and LOIs and whatnot. We weren't able to sell a business if no one was coming to buy it. So I think that's the other piece is you don't always talk, talk, talk. Well, you know, the only way a deal gets done is if someone writes a check for it. So that was. Um, you know we were beholden to that timeline as well, but I think postured ourselves in those different conversations to say you know we're open for business and available to to go down this route when when you're ready to so we kept an open dialogue regarding that uh, didn't eagerly look at external you know opportunities for acquisition or, or sort of you know um, harder deals to get done so, did your
1: agency agreement preclude you from looking at external
2: acquirers? Like yeah, were- but we were coming near the end of, of that agreement anyway. So it was sort of, you know, timing was in the air, right? Um, yeah. It yeah. was, it was, uh, yeah. It, it so was, they didn't yeah. want to lose you as an
1: agent, but also they didn't want to lose you to get acquired by somebody else, either, right? Like, right. So that right. sort of, Accelerated the timeline. That makes. I, well, I, I
2: I would speculate <laughs> that, yeah. that that was the case. Yeah, I'm not certain. Yeah, but it makes, it kind of makes, makes sense yeah. for sure. But, but so, we uh, didn't have those, those weren't conversations that we really wanted to entertain because, like I said, it was all going great and we were headed down this, you know, happily ever after type path. So we, you know, tried to, try to, you know, stay uh, in a lane that kept us headed there.
1: We did an episode recently uh, where one of the investors in the company said, look, great companies don't sell, they get acquired. So they position themselves mm-hmm. to be acquired, but they proact- like they want the acquirer to make the first move. It sounds like that was the case. You kind of said, hey, look, we're open. Like if yeah. that's something you want to explore, but you didn't go hat in hand to them and say, would you buy us,
2: please? Right, so you just, right.
1: Uh, you played your cards a little closer to the best. Basically.
2: Exactly. Yeah, no, we we... <laughs> Went about our business day in and day out and grew our business and kind of lived by the mantra that I had mentioned earlier about, you know, if you're not growing, you're going out of business. And that was us. And I believe that made us an attractive candidate. I always believed that made us attractive. Um, and we certainly were an outlier, but um, yeah, I didn't, you know, you do wanna get the maximum you can for your business. So you've gotta uh, you do. Uh, I felt like we had to play our cards right, and we had to, um, you
0: know, be patient.
2: <laughs> so, so if
1: I'm if I'm interpreting the the deal correctly, um, on, on one hand, things that would generally depress your valuation would be that you're an exclusive distributor of partner with Suntec, mm-hmm. and that they would have permission to veto any acquire. So all those things would generally depress the value of the company like enormously. On the flip side, things that would uh, increase the value of the company were that you were coming up on a renewal, that you were an attractive company that you could go to another platform uh, and choose to both partner with another platform and then ultimately get acquired. So you had these two competing forces, one depressing your multiple, the other probably jacking it up.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Is that the way you thought about it too, or?
2: Yeah, I, I, we, you know, we certainly had limited options on the table based on our company structure of, of working for a platform, right? And so, really, there were three options: the platform we work for could buy us, we could go to another uh, platform, whether via acquisition or sign contracts with them, or we could try to do the whole thing on our own from Ooh. from start to finish. That third option had the highest risk and the highest reward because that would have made us a much more valuable company. Option one, staying at home and staying with the home team uh, was the low-risk option. And that, I think, um, was what resonated with us the most is, hey, we've got a lot of people that rely on us. Um, This is a big business. There's no reason for us to be overly aggressive. Everyone can win in this transaction. And I think that's what we ended up doing. That's the deal we got done is one where everyone won. Yeah, great. The
1: the third option as I understand it if I'm correct if I'm if I'm interpreting you correctly, is that you could have gone and built your own correct uh, software, mm-hmm. your own platform effectively. Yes, yes. Uh, and replicate what SunTech had. Yep, that yeah, that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it was do the deal with you know, the one who brought you to the dance, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh go find another platform or or build your own platform. That's and right. you chose the, the former. What was the um and I know we have to be sensitive to to the details around the deal itself what was your reaction to their offer your personal reaction like just qualitatively how did you feel about it i,
2: I think when you when you get an offer um it it you know it's it, it kind of rocks you a little bit cuz you're like oh this is really happening right this is we're really going to do this right it's it, Maybe, uh, like when you, you know, uh, perhaps propose to your spouse, right? It's like one of those, uh, you know, or you go to buy a ring or something like that. You're like, wow, this is, this is really that expensive. We're doing this. Um, you know, it was like one of those kind of seminal life moments I felt like. So yeah, it was, um, a, a little surreal, a little tense. And it was, it was quite the moment. Yeah. How did your partners feel about it? I think we all reacted slightly differently and, it became a kind of a waltz for the three of us to get, you know, we had for 17 years run a business where we really were fortunate to generally be on the same page day in and day out and have the same vision. And, you know, this was a moment where we really kind of all had to take a walk in the woods separately and, and come to terms with, you know, um, this is happening and, and, you know, listen, there's, uh, the humility around it too, that, you know, you're giving up control of this thing that you control and it's your baby and you've got to, um, you know, you're, you're giving someone else the keys to it and that, you know, suddenly you're not going to be the, the big cheese anymore. Um, that, that was a big thing for us to, to, to really process as well. Um, you know, I mean, we're human, we have egos. So.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. As we all do. So how did your partners, Kind of come down. Like usually, when I've talked to people about partnership acquisitions, it's natural for kind of one partner see, is this the best deal? Maybe we should go shop it. Mm-hmm. Another might be like, hey, you know, burden hands worth two in the bush. Let's take the yep. deal. I'm ready to retire. <laughs> you know, like was there a little bit of that sort of like, is this really? Or were you all like immediately? No, this is
2: this is a great. We deal. were the the gamut of of those. Of those, you know, thoughts, um, mm-hmm. maybe much like the real estate market, right? There's this sort of irrational pricing of your own house or, you know, so I, I found that we did the same thing with our business. And, um, you know, we had to, um, you know, kind of stomach the fact that it wasn't as high as we had hoped, but we also had to look at reality and say, the value of the business is the price that someone's willing to pay for it. Not, not the price that we dreamed it would be worth one day. And I think that's part of that reconciliation process of, you know, are we doing this, you know, what are you thinking about in the woods? And we each dealt with that differently. How did you do it? I was the burden hand one. Um, I, I thought uh, they had provided us with a deal that was very fair. Um, and um, I thought the business was—it it was time for a larger company to control this business because it just was had grown so large. Um, I thought that was important, you know. Perhaps a, the the business required skills that and experience that none of us had had at that point, right? Um, that was you know that was my first day <laughs> running a business of that size, right? So. Um, maybe someone else that had run a business slightly larger uh, it was their turn to try to um, grow it. And uh... you know, there's, there's a couple of questions around
1: valuation that we ask ourselves a lot here on this show. It's like, it's like, what's it worth? Uh, Which you could point to third party data sources Mm -hmm. or previous other deals or whatever. And then there's the question, like what it's worth to you. Mm -hmm. And those two numbers can be very different, right? What it's worth to you. uh, Uh, if you're running your lifestyle through the business, it could be a, a much higher amount, mm-hmm. right? Because you, you guys didn't do that. In your case, you were pretty clean. You're very mm-hmm. clean in terms of your your PL. So uh I'm assuming uh you know that what it's worth to you conversation came down to like, is this a life-changing event for us? Does this allow yeah. us to go buy something? Like, did you have any of those kind of conversations where you're like, if we could get this for the business, that would mean for us as a family fill in the blank. Did you have yeah. those sort of conversations with your?
2: I, 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 We did. And it was a life-changing um, event for us in the sense that, you know what, I knew, you know, I knew I'm going to be able to send my kids to college. And, um, but I just know that the DNA that I have, um, I'm going to go back to work and I'm going to do something and I'm not going to, you know, um, you know, I'm not going to sit around and, and do nothing, which ironically is what I've done since. Since I left the company, but I'm, you know, preparing for the next step now. So, you know, I, I, I've, I've gone out and proven to myself that I, I, um, you know, I, I recharge my batteries and it's time to get moving again. So, yeah. um, yeah. you know, I think, uh, you know, we, we all share that mindset of like want, wanting to have a purpose and wanting to have a mission in terms of what you do professionally. And, and that, you know, that's not defined by. This deal, right? You're still, and that always inspired me. Looking at other people, right? Oh, you're, you know, you, you, you know, wh- why does um, Warren Buffett keep working, right? You know, it just because it's it's a challenge and it's what motivates you. And and engaging with people as you face these challenges, right? That, that, that's important too. And and um, was there a fourth
1: unspoken option in your exit, which was to do nothing? Meaning, just uh, uh, there was kind of kick
2: the can. Yeah, yeah, th- that was an option as well. I didn't like that option. I felt like our success had already been an outlier. you know, looking at, I looked at, were we more likely to get a better deal from someone else in the future, or were we more likely to be a smaller, less successful company in the future? And I was um, scared that we had so much outperformed normal that. Uh, we were likely to revert to the mean. And that was a scary concept for me. And I think the other thing too is, you know, a partner business, you can't take for granted the partnership and everyone's health and, you know, bad things, right. You know, I just, uh, we had had such a good run and and a good fortune, um, uh, you know, to date and uh, it seemed appropriate to, it was time to start hedging risks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In one way
2: or another. With three
1: partners, you triple the risk of some bad thing happening to any one Mm -hmm. of you. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and of course, we've already talked about this idea that at some point, this the middleman role may may become less valuable. You know, probably long long into the future. But it's not inconceivable that that these types of brokering businesses may Mm -hmm.
2: become less valuable. So, one hundred percent, the business is going to change. It will, but maybe not in the time on the time frame that everyone thinks. Right? Probably not as fast, but. You yeah. we'll wake up in 10 years. Yeah. It's going to look a lot different than it, it does. like self
1: driving cars in a little bit. Like everybody knows yeah. it's
2: going to happen, but it's not yeah. next week. But nothing's flying it's through the air right now either. Right. <laughs> We're not, we yeah, don't yeah. have cars yeah. that fly. So
1: yeah. 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 Hey, this has been great. I, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions, um, little lightning round questions before I let sure. you go. Are you up for that? Yeah. hundred percent. Biggest mistake you made during the selling process personally? Biggest mistake you made. Our show is all about trying to help people avoid the common mistakes mm-hmm. associated with doing something they don't do every day. So what would you like to have a do-over on?
2: Uh, I would have liked to have... Um, we, we spent a lot of time and energy uh, preparing our business to sell from a strategy point of view of how we ran the business and all that. We've talked a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we had done a better job of kind of having the financial piece of it in order so that we, um, n- you know, we knew our numbers and our, you know, kind of clean and cold inside and out, you know, we were kind of navigating that on the fly. And that was a little challenging for us.
1: What specific number? I mean, I'm assuming you knew your, your revenue and your profit, So were, there were numbers in like within the p Right. But, the- you know, when you think about,
2: well, you know, is, is is this car or this expense part of the business or not? You know, and you start weren't looking at the business the way in a, you know financially the way an acquirer would look at the business until maybe a little late in the ball game, and I think that, um, you know, uh, that that made it a little more difficult for us to navigate through. Yeah, great, great, uh, great advice.
1: I've heard selling a business is like this emotional roller coaster. I personally. <laughs> would 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 concur what was the low point on the roller coaster for you emotionally during the process
2: well uh the the, the hardest thing to do was to walk out on my last day so i uh, l- left you know after we kind of filled all of our obligations i left at the end of 2022 and walking out of the office in tears that was that was pretty hard this is a company you started
0: yeah
2: yeah
1: like giving birth to a company to employees. And it's not, it's not an insignificant size. Company. Yeah. What about the emotional high associated with selling your company? How would you
2: describe that? What was the moment? Um, I think, I think the high is when you, you know, the moment where you kind of get that, you know, sort of handshake that this is going to get done and you're, you know, really starting to do the kind of final pieces of. Diligence, what stage uh, was that for you? Because it wasn't the, the LOI would the letter of intent was mm-hmm. the
1: first step, but then there was diligence. At, at what point did you have that elation, that that sense of euphoria where you're like, no, no, this is actually going to happen?
2: I think once we were really, I mean, you know, once you're going through the, the, the contract of sale, uh, you know, the agreement, the, the actual written agreement that you realize that, you know, uh, that you you've done you've done the the hard blocking and tackling in terms of getting to an agreed upon number and you know I felt confident that we had run you know uh, an above board business and done things the right way so um uh, you know we didn't they didn't find any skeletons there weren't any skeletons to find um and that you know I didn't have a sleepless night on that part of it you know so so it made that moment one of, we're almost there, you know, push over, push over the, uh, finish line rather than, uh, you know, uh, maybe incredible deliberations between attorneys, uh, yeah. trying to, uh, you know, hedge or protect interests. So we, we yeah. didn't, it was, it was a pretty fast moving, um, you know, process because I, I believe because oh, we ran a clean business and, and approached a, um, you know, a, a sale with a amicable partner.
1: Yeah. I want to make sure my listeners took full note of that. The letter of intent, which you'll sign early in the process is, you know, a couple pages, fairly superficial. The definitive share purchase agreement that Greg is referring to is, you know, it's a 40, 50 page document. It looks totally <laughs> different. And once you get that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of work that's been put into that most likely. Yeah. And so that that is a validating point. So that's, that's super helpful. And I, last question, what trophy did you buy yourself to commemorate the win? What physical, did, is there a, a car,
2: a house, a guitar? I noticed the Gibson poster behind you. I guess what we've what we done is we took a, uh, with the kids, we went to Italy for three weeks uh, this past summer. So oh, finally, once I was, didn't have a vacation calendar to tend to. And, um, nice, where Nice you go? whole part of Italy? Uh, we did uh, a week in a, um, a town south of Naples called Agropoli. And then we did Florence and Rome. Um, oh, and it was uh, really neat. Um, did some Airbnbs and uh, ate a lot of pasta. Came back ten pounds heavier, so uh, it was great. Yeah, <laughs> sort of a, you know a, a bucket list trip that would you know wouldn't have been able to have done um, you know in regular times. So took advantage cool. of that. Congratulations! On, I'm sure
1: Thank the kids you. will remember that for years to come. I uh, I really appreciate you doing this, Greg.
0: Thank you. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Greg. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to watch the full video interview of today's episode, you can head over to our YouTube channel at Built to Sell Radio, where there you'll be able to watch the full video interview. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including some of the more technical terms used, be sure to visit Greg's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at Built to Sell Dot com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can nominate them by heading over to built slash nominate there. You'll have the chance to nominate someone to be a guest right here on the show with John special. Thanks to Dennis Lava for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company to get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I'll talk to you again next week.